Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. I'm Lisa Almers. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited to be bringing this word this morning. I, you know what? I need to acknowledge something right out of the gate here. This passage makes me deeply, deeply uncomfortable. Anyone else that, that Cindy just read? Okay. Um, those of you who didn't raise your hand, I'm assuming it's because you just haven't had your coffee this morning because... If you didn't raise your hand, you're probably not acknowledging some feelings that are within you that are uh, uncomfortable, okay? Because when we approach this passage, if we read it at surface level, I think it's a little scary. And I think what's scary about it is what it might be saying about Jesus. I remember when I was a little girl, I used to hear this passage read in church. I knew about it, but I never heard it preached on. And I think there's a really good reason for that, or there's at least two good reasons for that first one is, the portrait that we have of Jesus in this passage is so stark and abrupt and different from other passages that we, portraits that we have of him. So we're not really quite sure how to reconcile that. And um, there is an incredible scholar named Kenneth Bailey who wrote a book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, and he summarizes really well this tension that we feel when we encounter Jesus in this passage. Here's what he says. This story is often viewed as a troubling embarrassment. A sincere foreign woman seeks help from Jesus. At first, he ignores her. He then appears to exhibit racism and insensitivity to her suffering as he insults her in public. Yes, he does finally heal her daughter, but only after the mother demonstrates a willingness to be publicly humiliated. Why, the reader inevitably asked, asks, is this poor woman put through the ringer before Jesus accepts to exercise the demon from her daughter? Why? Why indeed. R.T. France, another scholar, says it this way, Jesus and this woman have a painful and labored interaction, as Jesus apparently plays hard to get, responding to this woman's pleas with discouraging silence, and then adding insult to injury by leveling a Jewish invective at her, calling her a dog which was a deliberately offensive term for Gentiles. Oof. And I think these interpretations have some real gravity because they're just the plainest reading of the text. It's the reading that we come in with a lot of times if we're not reading below the surface. And if we read it this way, we should be really uncomfortable because that means that Jesus was capable of being petty and aloof and actually kind of nasty, and that should bother us. So those feelings that you're feeling... Those are natural feelings to feel. (laughs) You're not wrong. That brings me to the second thing that I need to acknowledge about this passage, and that is that it's really, really tough to understand and to interpret. I really wish that Matthew had just given us some little instructions about how to read it. Maybe he'd put some asides in there, say something like, Jesus said this, but he didn't really mean it. Or Jesus said this, but he said it kind of facetiously with like a twinkle in his eye. Wouldn't that be great? But the text does not say that. And so the work that's left to us is the difficult work of reading this passage within context, bringing in everything that we already know. 
What do we know about Jesus's character? What do we know about the arc of salvation history here in Matthew's gospel and throughout the Hebrew scriptures and the, and the gospels as a whole? When we bring that in, we see better the shape of God's redemptive mission, and we see, we begin to see some glimmers about what Jesus was doing. We're a little bit less confused, hopefully. Now, as I labored with this text this week, I found myself profoundly challenged and profoundly grateful. I was challenged to sit with my feelings of discomfort and sadness and, like, this feeling in my mind of like, does Jesus feel this way about me? Like as a woman, like, and all of those feelings. But I also found myself profoundly grateful for this woman and her faith. And I took her as my guide because her faith makes her testimony clear. She persisted through silence and antagonism with humility and with humor because she had faith in Jesus' ability and desire to heal her daughter. And so, my invitation to you guys this morning and to myself is to persist like her, with faith, as scary as it is and as hard as it is, because my hope is that our faith in Jesus will be met like hers, with blessing. Okay? Do you guys want to go there with me? All right, let's get our Bibles out. We are in Matthew 15. starting in verse 21. Let me give you guys a couple pieces of context before we start. Two kind of large interpretive frameworks that we can look at this text. The first thing to understand is that the conversation that's being had in miniature in this passage is a conversation that has been happening throughout Matthew's gospel and indeed throughout all the gospels, which is this question about Israel's Messiah, Jesus as Israel's Messiah. Um, Matthew has already taken pains to establish that Jesus is Israel's Messiah because he fulfills Hebrew prophecies about Israel's Messiah. But Matthew has also been establishing that through Israel's Messiah, the Gentiles also will be brought into the family of God. So those are Matthew's two imperatives. He's writing to a Jewish audience, and he's trying to help them understand, yes, this is Israel's Messiah, but his mission is larger, and it is also to the Gentiles. Now, this has narratively been established in a lot of different ways from the very beginning, okay? In Jesus' genealogy, from the very beginning there, we have Gentiles, specifically Gentile women, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. They're figured very, very prominently in Jesus' line. We're ushered into the story by the Gentile magi who attend Jesus as a baby, Already, Jesus has healed in a story that's parallel to the one that we're looking at this morning. He has healed a Roman centurion's servant, a Gentile's servant, and he has healed Gentile demoniacs. So he's already established healing to Gentiles in in this story. Now, when we get to this passage, Jesus has relocated his ministry. If you look in um, verse 21, Jesus went away from there. He had been in the region of, of Galilee and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, he is withdrawing from Jewish territory deliberately and going into Gentile territory, partially because he's fleeing persecution from the Jews. And in a few um, verses, we will see that Jesus will perform miracles among the Gentiles that will cause them to glorify the God of Israel. That's in verse 31 of this passage. All of this means 
that when we come to the specific passage that we're looking at this morning, and Jesus essentially claims Gentiles have no claim on the Jewish Messiah, we are meant to feel that as surprise. We are supposed to be surprised, if not experiencing some outright cognitive dissonance when we come to it. Okay, so that's the first framework, this idea of Jesus is already establishing that he is going to be the Messiah for the Gentiles as well. The second framework is one that Bailey offers in that work that I was talking about before, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, and it's that this conversation that's being had between uh, Jesus and this Canaanite woman is not just a conversation between him and her, it's also a conversation between him and his disciples. His disciples are tagging along. Now remember, Jesus was an itinerant Jewish rabbi, okay? So one of his job was to to teach his disciples. His disciples were watching and listening. How is Jesus going to respond in this encounter? And so there is inevitably sort of a pedagogical quality to what's happening, to what Jesus is doing with his disciples. Now any of us who have had great teachers will know that sometimes they do a little thing where they will overstate, or they will be like the devil's advocate, although I'm not gonna call Jesus the devil's advocate. (laughs) But they will pose ideas that are not necessarily their own in order to elicit certain responses. What might Jesus be doing here? How might he be articulating himself in order to draw specific responses, not just from the Gentile woman, of course he's doing that with her, but also with his disciples? Now, the actual story is organized into three different appeals. And you guys, I know not all of this is going to be intellectual. We're doing some hard work here, so just hang in there with me. There's three different appeals in this this text of the Gentile woman to Jesus. And in each of those appeals, Jesus purposefully intensifies and escalates the central conflict between his disciples and this woman. And now I'm gonna start wandering into interpretive territory. And I wanna stress, a lot of this comes from Bailey. Um, I wanna stress that this is not a plain reading of the text. This is doing interpretive work. This is starting to read between the lines. But I think, given the context that we've just spelled out, it's actually really responsible reading of the text as well. Bailey's interpretation is that at every turn, Jesus is playing a role. The role that he's playing is of the conservative Jewish rabbi. He's voicing himself as a conservative Jewish rabbi in order to test the disciples, put them to the test, and to test this woman. Now, the test is of two different complexions. It is obviously sort of a pedagogical test where he's testing knowledge, he's testing theology, but it's also what we would think about as a test in terms of the Hebrew scriptures and the way the Hebrew scriptures talk about a test, which is that a test is meant to reveal or to to draw out what is in a person's heart. It is meant to reveal the deep-seated affections, prejudices, and beliefs of people. Okay, so when Jesus is testing this woman and he's testing the disciples, what will he draw out? What will he get as a result? Starting in verse 22, let's talk about this encounter. We have a very strange and abrupt encounter between two warring factions, and I don't think that that's overstating the case. 
Okay, we have a Canaanite woman. Matthew goes out of his way to call her a Canaanite woman, which actually is not the way that they would have talked about geography in this time. That was like an ancient term. What Matthew is highlighting is that this woman is coming out of enemy territory. Okay, the Canaanites were the Israelites' fiercest enemy, the ones that were constantly drawing Israel away from true worship of God um, and into idol worship, okay? So here's this woman coming out of Canaanite territory, and she addresses Jesus by his Jewish title. She addresses him as, O Lord, Son of David. This is an incredibly audacious thing for this woman to be doing. So she is crossing over two different barriers. The barrier of being a woman approaching men, which was not great in those days. And she is also approaching a Jew as a Gentile. So already we're sort of set up for some conflict here. The disciples, in turn, are faced with the test of this encounter. And Jesus intensifies the discomfort they're feeling by offering silence. The silence is a test both to the women and to the disciples. Now, the disciples read Jesus' silence as a tacit endorsement here, don't they? A tacit endorsement of the discomfort. They're like, oh, he feels really uncomfortable too. Um, and they begin to give voice to this discomfort in ways that they have before. Remember in the encounter with both the Samaritan woman and the blind beggar, the disciples start to talk about, like, Jesus, send this person away. We don't want this person near you. The disciples are quick to want to remove anybody who is presumptuously or inappropriately requesting Jesus' favor. And this woman definitely meets that bill, right? The test has reflected it has brought out in their hearts a lack of compassion and their own deeply ingrained belief that Israel's Messiah is the property of Israel. Hands off. He doesn't belong to you. Okay. To our surprise, what, what do we want right here? We want him to turn around and rebuke the disciples, right? But he doesn't. Jesus goes along with it. As if stoking a fire, he turns to them and he, he floats a little bit of theology, almost like he's quoting a mission statement here, a neat encapsulation of the Messiah's imperative. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He says it to them. Now, it's a little tricky because Jesus is actually restating, recapitulating something he'd already said in chapter 10 about going only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He was talking to the disciples then when he was sending them out and saying, don't go to Samaritan territory, don't go to the Gentiles, just go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so what Jesus is highlighting and bringing to a fore are the real stakes in this moment. What are the real stakes? It is indeed the case that he, as, as the Jewish Messiah, his priority was first to come to the covenant people. Never mind um, that God's covenant people had been blessed to be a blessing to others, but I'm getting ahead of myself on that one. But France, one of the other commentators, points out that Jesus' conventional Jewish rebuff here serves as a test, a test of everyone's grasp on what this woman's appeal actually involves. This is not a neutral encounter, but rather one in which the Messiah is being pointedly asked to widen the scope of his mission. Okay, so we've seen how the disciples have responded to all of this. They're uncomfortable. They want this woman sent away. It's revealed their theology that Jesus is the Messiah only to Jews. 
How does the woman respond to this test of silence? <laughs> they want her to go away. She doesn't go away. She leans in. She draws nearer. Like the persistent widow, or like the friend at midnight, she does not let Jesus alone, but she repeats her request this time. Very simply, she drops the title, just very simply and on her knees. Lord, help me. She is a desperate mother who pushes ahead, not just because she loves her daughter, but because she believes that Jesus' promises and power and gracious lordship will be exercised on her behalf as a woman and as a Canaanite. And this brings us to the most painful part of the story, the one that just like turns our stomach because then Jesus voices again, not only the traditional theology of the Israel-only Messiah, but he does so using derogatory language that Jews used against Gentiles. If before he was sort of like gently like blowing on the disciples' fires of like latent misogyny and racism, now he's just like pouring lighter fluid on it and like throwing a lighted match on top. Okay, he's bringing everything to a crisis in this moment. He has a little mini parable here about uh, dogs. Actually, little dogs. The word is little dogs. Keep that in mind. We'll return to that in a second. Um, and children. And what he says is that if he heals this Canaanite woman's daughter, it will be like a master throwing his kid's bread to the dogs. Let's sit with this for a minute, you guys. This is an extreme and ugly parable. Bailey explains the rhetorical strategy that Jesus is using here. What he is doing is he is holding up to the disciples' eyes a mirror of what their theology leads to, what this Israel-only theology leads to in a stark, um, in a stark image. The verbalization is authentic, says Bailey, to the disciples' attitudes and feelings, but shocking when put into words and thrown in the face of a desperate, kneeling woman pleading for the sanity of her daughter. And that's exactly the point, that it's shocking. Jesus is now pressing that Israel-only Messiah paradigm to its ultimate conclusion with a reductio ad absurdum. He's revealing the fear and the pride that has crept into Israel's heart and the way that it expresses itself in this nasty language. Of course, Israel had been Yahweh's treasured possession, hadn't they? His people, the apple of his eye, his children. He'd made covenant promises to them. And now he was starting to call other people his children. He was inviting other people into those promises. And the response of the Jewish institution, at least so far, had been to build up what Paul would later call the dividing wall of hostility. Build it up. They built it up using traditions based on purity laws, insisting on elaborate hand-washing and separation from all unclean things in order to remain God's special people, his holy people. And yet Jesus, right before this passage, has just insisted something, that true purity is not a matter of outward ceremonial difference, but rather inner moral renewal. It's an inner state, not an outer 
state. And we've spoken a lot about this, that Jesus and his ministry on earth spent most of his time breaking down that wall of separation between Jews and Gentiles, drawing near to the ceremonially, ceremonially unclean things like menstruating women, pigs, lepers, beggars, sinners. In turn, he, the unclean people started to draw near to him with faith, like that bleeding woman who said, if only I could just touch the hem of his robe, I will be made well. I will be made whole. And we come to find through the Gospels that the only thing strong enough to break down that wall of hostility, the only thing emboldening enough to draw us near to the throne of God, where we know we don't deserve to be, is his compassion for us and our faith in him. So, I just want to slow down for a moment here and just really savor the Canaanite woman's response to this insulting parable, because it is insulting. Let's look closely to what the test has drawn out of her, out of her heart. It is a thing of beauty, truly. The perfect mixture of humility and audacity, and actually she's pretty funny too. She transforms Jesus' parable and turns it back on him. She absorbs the insult and she transforms it into blessing. Saying, this is what she's saying in essence. Yes, I know that in your eyes we may appear like little dogs, and as little dogs we deserve nothing. But the little dogs are thrown little pieces of bread at the end of the meal. You, Jesus, are still my Lord and my master, and I know you can heal my daughter and that you have compassion for all. Do you not have a crumb for me and for her? Faith has given her courage to know that God's grace is more powerful and more creative and more abundant than anyone had yet believed. So abundant that even the crumbs of his grace and power will be enough to bind up broken bodies and to send demons fleeing and to liberate every soul that is captive to sin and death. And faith has given her the eyes of prophecy. She's a prophet. She, will, she sees a time when indeed the Gentiles will share in, Israelites, in the Israelites' bread. And the time is coming soon. Chapter 14, or chapter 15, a little bit later, oh, sorry, let me start that over. In chapter 14, the chapter before this, Jesus had multiplied five loaves and two fishes to feed 5,000 Jews on the desolate shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, in chapter 15, the chapter that we're looking at, he will turn again to face another crowd, this time of Gentiles, 4,000 Gentiles, who he will feed with that same miraculous sharing of a little bread and a little fish, and again, there will be enough. There will be more than enough. Even the little pieces that are left over will fill seven baskets, which is the Hebrew number for completion and wholeness. There is always plenty and to spare at God's table. So I'm just left in awe of this woman's faith. <laughs> it's the same faith that Abraham had on the mountain called Moriah. Remember, that mountain means God will provide. 
where Abraham offered his beloved son, holding nothing back because he believed that God would provide what was needed, even though it seemed totally impossible. It's the same faith that Tamar had, the woman who was more righteous than the patriarch Judah because she believed that sometimes God gets a little unconventional in his methods of providing for widows and orphans when those who have been tasked the charge totally fallen down on the job. It's the same faith that Rahab had, the Canaanite prostitute who trusted so much in the power of Israel's God that she was willing to risk everything to serve him. It's the faith that Ruth had when she followed Naomi to a land that she had never been to before, where they both ate leftovers, the little grain that they gleaned from the margins of the field after the barley harvest was gone. God provided the grain, and it was enough. And it was the faith of the widow of Zarephath. She turned her last handful of flour and her last drop of oil into a loaf of bread for Elijah because God had promised her through that prophet that he would make sure she had plenty of bread for many, many uh, days to come. She believed he provided a jar of flour that was never spent, a jug of oil that never ran dry. Again and again and again, faith believes there's enough for all of us. There will be enough because God will provide even when we have no idea how he's going to do it. And this is why I still find this passage really challenging. (laughs) After we've cleared away the cobwebs of confusion, after we've understood what Jesus is, is doing, even after knowing that all of this was a testament to draw out this woman's faith, the spectacular faith, I'm uncomfortable now because I know it's true (laughs) that there are times when hardship comes. People we love get sick. Our children are endangered. We lose faith in the people that we love. Maybe they betray us. Maybe the church betrays us. We don't know where Jesus is in that. And sometimes Jesus is silent. And that's scary. It is scary and hard to keep walking toward him when he isn't speaking to us. But in the end, I have to believe, because I know that ultimately Jesus is not offering us crumbs. He's offering us his entire self. He's holding nothing back because of his great love for us. He gave himself to make us whole. And even if we can't see it now, I believe that we will see it. In a moment, you're going to be invited to come here to this table where Jesus broke the bod- his body and he called it bread. He gave it to everyone who wants to receive him. Take, eat, he says, I will be enough for you. Our small part is just to approach like this Canaanite woman to receive the gifts of God for the people of God, as the words of the BCP say. And so let us come. Let us feed on him in our hearts by faith and with thanksgiving. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.